0: Welcome to the final episode of Season 1 of the IBSC Exploring Boys Education podcast. What an amazing first season it has been and we're humbled and encouraged by the response of member schools to the conversations we've been having. Over 67 voices have contributed to our shared reflections on boys and their education. Topics in this first season have ranged from wellness to IBSC action research, from responding to a pandemic, to creating cultures of innovation in boys' schools, from civil discourse about race and inclusion, to the digital life of boys. We've spoken about women in leadership in boys' schools, boys and responsible sexual citizenship, and we've had the opportunity to learn from heads of school in the coalition who are thought leaders in boys' education. Teachers, leaders, and experts from 42 member schools and other organizations have contributed to the conversations we've been having, and in the process, Season 1 has garnered over 4,000 listens since launching officially in August 2019. It's proved pretty difficult, as I'm sure you'll understand, to select the highlights from season one. But I hope that as you listen to this collection of soundbites from our most popular episodes, including some new content, you will be reminded of what a privilege it is to be a member of IBSC. The collegiality we share as a global coalition is valuable beyond words. Before we reflect on this season, All of us in the IBSC office want to acknowledge what a challenging year 2020 has been. We have been blown away by each member school's response and the agility and perseverance of faculty in these schools. Never before has there been a time where we need each other more. We will miss being together in Barcelona this year, but look forward to the time when we will be able to get together in person again In the meantime, let's keep the connections we have strong and support each other as much as we can. Early in 2019, the IBSC Board released a statement supporting Boys and Boys' Schools. One of the main tenets of this statement is that Boys' Schools' success stems from many reasons but foremost from teaching young men moral values and principles that strengthen our society and model kindness, tolerance, empathy, and especially respect for women. In our popular episode on boys, relationships, and sexual citizenship, we were able to explore this further with Ojeda Hall from the One Love Foundation.
1: I mean, boys are asking for help on this issue. What we know is that one in three men will be in an abusive relationship in their lifetime, but there's so much taboo and stigma around relationship violence that men in particular and boys as they're learning and growing are much less likely to ask for help.
0: Ojeda reinforced the idea that the work we do with boys around respectful relations is crucially important.
1: Many times in our boys' schools, many of the boys have not been around girls until they've had mixers or, or proms or parties, but um, they need to be ready for the social aspect of college. And many of them are starting relationships on Snapchat and Tinder, and they need to know when not to start a relationship, if they do, how to break up, break up respectfully if, if they need to, how to deal with rejection, how to handle um, consent, you know, how do they gain consent, so even to have a platonic relationship and just be a good friend, um, I love that we're talking to boys schools because boys can can speak up um, in a way that maybe they might sh- at times shrink to the background in co-ed spaces. So, um, you know, we're excited to get, to get more boys schools involved in our work.
0: Adam Cox's ideas, as shared in our pilot episode, An Important Moment for Boys and Boys' Schools, frame how these conversations might happen best in boys' schools. Firstly, he highlights the importance of giving boys an authentic platform from which to express their ideas.
2: If we try to teach these kinds of moral values without uh, giving boys an opportunity to discover, you know, their own authentic voice and uh, to be free in in their thinking and to express their ideas And we're putting the cart before the horse. It's just not going to work So and they know that they they always have a sense when there's something that is being kind of, you know Applied to them without their permission or without a sense that they have some role some voice in how it's going to take shape and so if we if we find a way to give boys a chance to be more authentic in their, their personal expression and their ideas and setting their priorities, all of those other things will come in line
0: in a much more natural way. Doctor Cox also reinforced the importance of questions in helping boys to engage authentically with the world. Learning
2: to ask questions
0: is one of the best ways for boys to feel more socially accomplished, to
2: build a bigger social network, whatever it is that they are hoping to do. And I think the same thing applies in our relationship with boys and helping them to find their own sense of uh, their authentic selves is that we sometimes need to do less kind of talking and more kind of asking. We need to give them a forum where they can express themselves, and we need to ask lots of questions that are pose in a in a non judgmental way, so that they really can explore what is it, what it is that they're thinking and how that thinking has developed, and they can hear from other kids. I think sometimes the most powerful pushback or the most powerful uh, you know uh, effect in modeling or, or shaping kids' uh, perspectives is the feedback of, of their peers, of course. So mm-hmm. I think posing some important questions and giving them a chance to really talk about those things is critical. I think that's more critical than things that we might do uh, structurally or you know naming a
0: program or something like that. I think having some genuine forum for exchange is the is the main thing. Lastly and very importantly Adam Cox urges teachers of boys to encourage the boys in their care to learn to listen deeply, to respond to important conversations.
2: When you talk to boys about their experience of being in in boys' schools, and especially those that might have been in a coeducational school uh, previously, they they talk about the advantages. They feel as though their natural way of learning, their way of moving, their way of just simply being in the world, is more acknowledged, and there's less resistance to that. So all of that is kind of good, and it's very affirming for boys. At the same time, I think that there is a great value in boys hearing what it is that you know other people have to say about things and and sometimes i think you know i've for many years i've i've advocated that boys ought to be listening to what what girls might say for example mm-hmm. in a sister school in a girl school and just kind of you know, participating and being active listeners, not necessarily asking questions, not providing a debate, but taking that in and then discussing amongst themselves what it is they've actually heard, because I think we do need to be training boys to listen deeply, and there is a, a skill involved in learning to listen deeply and to make sense of what you've heard, and so, you know, the more, the more ex- exercise and uh, practice that boys get in something like that, uh, I think the better off that they'll be
0: certainly with many of the issues faced by boys schools these days dr cox's assertion that it's appropriate for us to be grappling with what boys schools should be moving forward is a timely suggestion i think that there
2: there are times uh, in the life of groups and organisations where it might be appropriate to think of uh, a paradigm shift taking place, and I think that some of that is happening right now. And it it may be in response to some more kind of popular ideas about what uh, boy schools or even boyhood represents, and uh, the need to, or uh, you know, grapple with some of those myths and and present uh, in some cases an alternative narrative about what it is that boy schools are actually accomplishing
0: and and what's taking place in boyhood as well. Chris Post and Megan Kenny from Boys Latin School of Maryland agree.
3: Raising boys, teaching boys and forming young men has never been more important. Um, part of our work focuses on the development of healthy relationships uh, throughout our school, K-12, uh, within the school community and outside of it as well. Um, we don't believe that boys will be boys. Instead, we believe that boys will be men young men of courage, compassion, and integrity, and it's our job to help them get there. So when I think about um, our work in helping boys to form enduring personal relationships, uh, it comes back to our values. Uh, we want boys to act with compassion and with integrity uh, in their own work and in their decision-making and in their relationships. We want boys to be courageous and we want boys to lead. Of course, relationships are at the core of all of that.
4: We are confident that our boys leave here and they are, we are sending them out into the world, um, fulfilling like all academic all academic areas. But one of the things that we've always valued here is deep personal relationships. And that's really at the foundation of the work that we do with One Love and with our boys around healthy relationships. Um, we want our boys to be prepared when they leave here for the world from a social and emotional standpoint. Um, you know, we talk a lot in counseling about meeting our students where they are, and I think that's exactly what we do with this work. We meet our boys where they are and um, assess how, how ready they are to engage in the conversations. We, um, our boys are not afraid to lean in and, and have some challenging conversations and, and talk about ways that as young men, how can they be active participants in healthy relationships? Um, I think for us from a counseling standpoint and also just from a school, the work that we do with the boys and with One Love directly is really quite empowering for our boys. We work with the boys around not only self-advocacy but how to advocate for a friend. Um, We talk with them about how to safely intervene, how to be proactive bystanders. You know, if they do see something, how do they speak up? How do they say something? How can we help our boys be ambassadors for change? Um, And all of this speaks, as Chris had mentioned earlier, directly to our, our core values of our mission, you know. Um, helping build men of courage, compassion, and integrity.
0: It is clear from interacting with many of our members that this is important work for schools. And we are proud of our members for seeking to make their school's single-sex culture work for the good of the men these boys will become and the women they will count as acquaintances, colleagues, friends, partners in life, and daughters. A year ago, I was privileged enough to be sitting with Hal Hannaford in his living room in Montreal, talking with him about boys' schools and the mental well-being of boys and faculty, and the power of connection. This was for our first official podcast, Developing Boys' Hearts. The ideas he shared that day still challenge me, and lead on well from what you've just heard from Adam, Ojeda, Chris, and Megan.
5: I'll argue that a heart is everything. Right? In in that, if we focus more of our educational value and what we're doing on developing the heart, we're probably going to actually develop the mind way better. And I think many times we focus on the mind as the priority. So the whole point is to say, yeah, we want great minds and, and, and big hearts. But at the core of it, you know that hard work. What is a great man? What is a nice guy? What does it mean to be kind? What does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean to really have a good heart? And, yeah. and you know that doesn't mean you're avoiding mistakes and issues. And exactly. I mean, boys will get into as much trouble with a big heart yeah. as they will with no heart. They're fully capable. But how so, do they
0: respond to those things? I mean, I think that's the key, isn't
5: but, it? Well, you know, as I say all along, what a, what you want boys to change their behavior. Yeah. They're, they're going to change their behavior when they experience compassion, kindness, empathy, love. Love and forgiveness yeah. and then they will change if they just yeah. experience punishment or hark or nothing ever changes. Yeah. They change through those things. So we're, if, if we can model that, or as I say, we judge a community by the ability of everyone in the community to look after each other. Yeah. That's how we deal with health issues, quite frankly. And, and it's about creating safe spaces, isn't it? It's that old adage. I mean, I'll, I'll really believe that a boys' school is good for boy, good for for better for boys it's better for any boy. Yeah. And I think we've done so much in the last quarter century to, to make sure that boys' schools can be welcoming yeah. places for yeah. any boy, no matter what the interest. And the safe safe place element is crucial because I actually believe that boys are much better at giving help than they are for asking for help.
0: Truth is, we often talk about the power of relationship in boys' school circles. HAL frames this idea beautifully.
5: We think that it should be a strategic imperative of every school to foster meaningful connections because they are going to be the salvation of what every single person, in particular every boy, is going to need in their yeah. life. And we, we boy schools generally have historically done that really well, right? The yeah. old adage, oh, I, of course. you know, you go to a boy school, you keep your high school friends for life, yeah. and you understand about a real friendship, something that men have, have not been great at. So I think, yes, it has to be a focus. How are we going to deal with it?
0: Ned Hallowell, who spoke at the 2019 IBSC Annual Conference in Montreal, also talks about the power of connection.
6: Once you feel connected, once you feel safe, um, learning picks up exponentially. My old friend Priscilla Vale, who's now in heaven, she used to say emotion is the on-off switch for learning. And, you know, once you get fear and anxiety out of the way, learning takes off. But if fear and anxiety are in the way, uh, learning grinds to a halt. Yeah. So one of the teacher's main jobs is to create a, a safe classroom where it's it's okay to fail, where it's okay to make mistakes.
0: Do you think part of our role is to celebrate who who boys
6: are? Oh yeah, no, and 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 help them help them do the same. Yeah. You know, have fun. Yeah, being boys.
0: I liked what you said about discovering play again. Yeah, um, and, you know. I can't remember how you said it, you know, we, we used to do something, you know, go outside. Right,
6: right. We used to something that's now obsolete called go out and play. Yeah, you know, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, pro- and that benefit of relationship and,
0: and, 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 and downtime probably also plays a huge yeah, role in, yeah, in those yeah. safe spaces. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of focus at this conference in particular on health and wellness, particularly on mental wellness. What about... about what, what do schools need to do to create cultures in which that kind of wellness is celebrated? Because not only for boys, but for their faculty too. Um, uh, many faculty are under pressure. Boys are under pressure. How do we create cultures in our schools um, that value the mental wellness of the people in our care?
6: Well, just uh, create a culture that's low on fear and high on trust. And I think that sort of defines, defines a mentally healthy culture. High trust, low fear, yeah. you know permission to be real.
0: Few who attended the 2019 IBSC annual conference in Montreal can forget Sonia Lupien's superb keynote on stress. We were able to catch up with her after she had spoken to reflect on how this translates to practices boys schools can encourage to help their students manage stress by losing their mobilized energy.
7: You know, it was important for me to say the best way to, lo- to to decrease a stress response is to move. You have to lose the mobilized yeah. energy. Now, moving doesn't mean playing football or basketball for boys. Yes, it can be this, but it can also be dancing. Dancing is an amazing way to decrease a stress response. You lose a lot of energy when you dance and for many other reasons. So we have to allow boys to dance, you know, and yeah. this is in a boys school. This is because a lot of them will like doing this. And it doesn't mean they have more feminine traits or not. And uh, we see a lot of positive effects of dancing.
0: And also, you, you know, you were, you were speaking about belly breathing,
7: mm-hmm.
0: and and the benefit of singing, and and you know, the benefit of that in a boys' school is, is also powerful.
7: Exactly. So when you sing, you will do belly breathing, meaning you will extend the diaphragm, which is a muscle under your thoracic cage, and when you extend it to a certain level, it activates a response that is called the parasympathetic vagal response. Mm-hmm. That's the the stress hormones being produced. So, you know, I I, I sing in my car, you know, when I have a stress response. So, again, allowing these kids. Now, what I say to schools, you cannot put this mandatory. You cannot oblige your brain to do what it doesn't want to do. So the best way to decrease stress in a school is to give all the choices the kids want, and they do whatever they want when they need. So they wanna go play basketball, they go play basketball, they wanna go sing, they sing, they wanna do yoga, they do yoga, but at least they have the choice because what we know now is that the brain really likes having multiple methods to deal with stress. If you give only one, it's gonna be very difficult for the brain to deal with that.
0: Speaking about stressful situations, no one in the coalition could have predicted that we would find ourselves amid a global pandemic one year on from that wonderful conference in Montreal. Boys schools around the world had to respond to life in lockdown by shifting to an online distance learning model. We hosted a global conversation on this podcast on one of our recent episodes, and it has proved to be one of our most popular releases. Much of what is shared there is still relevant, so please do give it a listen. What has become clear is how challenging many have found this time. And, in a previously unreleased segment, Samara Spielberg frames this so well.
8: When I think about the guiding principles that we have as we shift from face-to-face to online learning, I keep thinking about IBSC in Australia when Tracy Villancourt turned to the audience and she said, with boys, we turn a blind eye until we see a black eye. And if coronavirus and our current situation is teaching us anything right now, it's that illness can be invisible and that includes mental health disorders such as anxiety and depression. Situations like these are very psychologically triggering to both children and adults alike. And we know that if we use Dr. Sonia Lupien's recipe for stress, which we learned at IBSC in Montreal last year, novelty, unpredictability, threat to the ego, and sense of control are all huge stress triggers. And this situation is just the perfect storm for stress. We also know that our brains are experiencing a lot at once. We are in constant fight or flight mode or experiencing chronic stress. At the same time, we're dealing with collective grief. We are all mourning the loss of what was. That might manifest in a lack of focus, tiredness, um, creativity blocks, perhaps inconsistent emotions, or, at, or as some are saying, the emotional Rona coaster. I've been on it many times. <laughs> and there's an inability to solve novel problems. And that's not just for our students, but it's for our teachers, our administrators, the parents of our students, the staff. And really, I think it's for all humans right now. So in other words, this means we can't be business as usual. And that's really one of the biggest guiding principles that I hope that people keep in mind. As the Spanish department chair, I discussed all of this with my team and we came up with our why before we even began curating our content. And our mission is threefold. First and foremost, we want to infuse joy and laughter in these uncertain times. So in Spanish class, silliness is celebrated. Dad jokes are making a comeback. We're in it. Secondly, It is human over student, even though that's what it always is for us, but more so than ever. It is feedback over grades, because why add so much stress right now? And it's community over curriculum, for starters. We know that this might evolve and this might continue, but this is what's keeping us grounded right now. And that means community building activities every single day, brain breaks and movement activities every single class, Um, social emotional prompts and sharing daily through journaling and practicing gratitude and to be completely honest it is a lot of straight up vulnerability modeled by teachers first we are not holding back when we are grumpy we tell the boys we feel grumpy when we are on that emotional rona coaster we tell the boys that we're on it because then they share with us how they're feeling We don't bring coronavirus into our lessons. Um, We believe that our boys are getting enough of that everywhere else. And if we can be a joyful escape, we've succeeded. But if our students wanna talk, we will drop our lesson and we will talk to them about it. And lastly, less is more. How can we give grace to ourselves as teachers and give our students some room to breathe and be kids? When curating lessons, we ask, How can we create assignments that alleviate the stress on both child and parents? Well, why not have students make a how-to video setting the table or walking the dog, helping a sibling? How can we provide an outlet to let go of some of the stress for our students? Well, why not present a choice board and let students take some control over their learning since we all feel so out of control right now? How can we bring the community together so that our students can be together even when apart? Well, we took one Spanish song with an incredible message and differentiated it for every single grade, focusing on different targets and skills. And then we brought full grades together to perform it as we co-taught with the music teacher. They're gonna be surprised at their Monday morning meeting when that's the song of the week. And you know, we're really just taking it back to biology 101 and doing what we do in the beginning of the year. So far, not only is it working, really really well for us and bringing so much joy to the teachers and hopefully to the boys but we're finding that they're flourishing in spanish as well
0: in a recent conversation with dr shimi kang she also highlighted the need for us to be aware of the impact of the pandemic on the mental health of our boys
9: so we're just starting to get data um, and we are definitely seeing what we're all feeling, which is there is an increase in mental health symptoms. We're looking at somewhere between 40 to 60 percent of the population. That's Canadian data, is saying their mental health has become worse um, or moderately or severely worse um, since the pandemic began. Uh, I think in young people, what I'm hearing are um, feelings of loneliness. Um, of course, boredom um, an increase in some self kind of medicating type of behaviors like vaping, um, substance use, drinking, um, you know, we know that the young brain really craves connection and they're very susceptible to feelings of loneliness. Um, And also I think for those boys that have learning differences, um, it's been very challenging to move on to remote learning. Um, I think for all children, um, but definitely that population which is quite like quite strong in in boys schools. But on the other hand, I would say I'm hearing things like um, people are sleeping more and they're having dinner with their families. um, And they're connecting and I think it really uh, shows us the issues that we're talking about in this course and in this book, which is how do we balance um, these very important activities, these daily activities that give us health and wellness. Um, this pandemic is showing us the importance of connection, the importance of um, wellness, of lifestyle, of balance, um, but also uh, the importance of um, you know all of those things that keep us uh, healthy and strong. So I think this is going to be very interesting given the timing that we're in.
0: As I look back on Season 1, one conversation has probably been timelier than any other. In a recent two-part series on Reaching, Teaching and Succeeding with Boys of Colour, we were able to engage in an important conversation with many in IBSC schools who are facilitating discourse in their own schools on issues of inclusion and belonging. In Part 1 of Reaching, Teaching and Succeeding with Boys of Colour, we heard from Randall Kennedy, Jack Pennell, and Joseph Nelson. And in part two, we listened to teachers from around the world who are doing this important work in their schools. Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy highlighted the importance of civil discourse in boys' schools.
10: It's important that we're having these conversations because we still confront real problems. The fact of the matter is the the history of... Uh, boys of color at uh, elite secondary schools—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not a long history. And um, in certain ways, you know, the, the 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 kids at these schools, the boys at these schools, in certain ways, are still in the—we're still in the pioneering stages in, in in many respects. It's not like we have a long, 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 deeply developed history. We're we're still experimenting. We're still trying to find our way. And the only way in which we can accomplish that is through discussion, through experiment, through uh, debate, um, to try to figure out methods and best methods.
0: He continued to contextualize for us what it means for boys of color to grow up in two very different environments and the internal tension this creates.
10: You grow up in a in a in a neighborhood, and I grew up in a in a predominantly black but thoroughly you know work, working class, um, settled, you know good neighborhood. But I was to, to go to St Albans. I I went across the city. I left my neighborhood. I left the kids with whom I had uh, grown up with whom I'd grown. You know, I, I I was was going someplace else. And so I'm leaving I'm leaving what's familiar to me. I'm going to new surroundings. And for a youngster that's you yeah, know that's that that's a that can be a real big deal. Um, there were feelings of so I'm you know I'm you know my, my friends in my neighborhood say to me, well, you know, Randy, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving us? Are you abandoning us? Are you ashamed of us? Or, you know, are you, what, are you too good for us? I mean, those are, you know, those are the sort of questions that, um, that I got and that I know for certain that uh, other, uh, you know, boys of color get. And then when they go to, okay, so that's what, they get, that's what they get in their own neighborhood. And there's a certain amount of alienation that sometimes arises. And, um, and that, can be, that can be tough on a youngster. And then, okay, so then they, they go to the new place. And in the new place, they are talking with youngsters who, you know, have been social. Sometimes they've been socialized quite differently. And they, you know, sometimes they like, you know, very different music. Their aesthetic sensibilities are different. They, uh, maybe they haven't been around uh, boys of color uh, before. And, you know, they might ask questions, which, you know, they could be perfectly innocent questions, but maybe they come off, you know, sort of awkwardly. And so th- these are some of the, the, the issues that come up. You, you go to a different school. You're a boy of color. You go to a different school. There are not many uh, other, uh, you know, boys of color in your, in your class. You feel like you're sticking out. Um, and then, of course, with any youngster, I don't care who the youngster is, if you're growing up, you're going to class, you're trying your best, you're in a competitive environment, things come up. There are misunderstandings. There are, uh, you know, mistakes made. And under the best of circumstances. Now, you know, a mistake is made or somebody says something. Well, is this just the sort of thing that, you know, happens? You know, everybody makes mistakes. Everybody says something that comes out the wrong way some of the time. Or is this something that is aimed at me and you know that that raises a lot of anxiety you know was it was this was this was this teacher dismissive with me because i'm black or was this teacher dismissive because the teacher is excessively dismissive uh if this teacher gave me a bad mark or by the way, if this teacher gave me an extremely good mark, well, is that a, uh, is that just the teacher's, um, you know, impression of my effort and my achievement? Or do we have, you know, is there some sort of bias one way or the other, you know, playing into this? Well, I mean, these are questions that are difficult for adults, for goodness sakes, much less people who were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16.
0: Swarthmore College professor Joseph Nelson joined Jack Pennell, head of Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys, as they shed more light on the experience of boys of color and marginalized boys in our schools.
11: I think uh, the choice of the word assimilation is interesting. It's, it's fraught with. Um, some worry for me uh, because uh, there might be an expectation by uh, some institutions that, why can't the boys of color be just like us? And uh, and I think the, uh, the goal of education is to, the goal of education, particularly I think the goal as a leader of an all-boys school, is that I want boys to discover who they are uh, and to be comfortable in who they are. And uh, for a boy of color, and I also want to mention boys on the margin. There are boys who are low-income households or who are from indigenous cultures in other countries um, that we might not use the same language, but we're talking about that boy where he is seen as a minority on a school campus. Uh, that, uh, that, you know, you, When a boy walks through the doors of your schools around the world, a boy of color, he is probably shedding a part of himself walking that door every single day. And at 12 and 13 years old, you may not know what that means, but I can tell you, having lived it, that um, uh, it's a struggle. Um, One friend of mine who went to a private school says he was in Washington, D.C., and he lived in a, in a segregated part of the city and he would take three buses to get to school. And he said he would spend his time dressing uh, on three buses to look right to walk in the school. And then when he left the school, undressing so he could go back to his home community. Uh, and so that's a, that's a, there's a lot of weight there. Right. Joseph, there's a lot. That's put on that boys lived experience every single day that has to do with maintaining who he is, staying connected to his family, honoring who he is, and also going into a school and figuring out how he's going to live and thrive and study in a school that can be remarkably
12: different from his life at home. Yes, and it's a constant regular navigation that boys of color or boys on the margin have to contend with that represents another layer of resilience that they need to exercise in order for them just to be a successful student that we, that we oftentimes overlook or don't acknowledge or don't recognize. And it's their adolescence, early adolescence, children even, that, that these expectations for them to think about what parts of themselves are they gonna de-emphasize or emphasize and still hold a positive sense of self throughout all of that, and do well in physics, (laughs) you know, becomes all these factors that they have to contend with that I think we as educators and as um, folks who work in schools can think about how we can organize schools or structure schools in ways that mitigate um, the levels of resilience that often boys need to, to exercise.
0: Joseph further highlights the danger of what author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie calls the single story. The idea that stereotypes are negative and dangerous and hamper inclusivity.
12: In popular discourse in news and media and film, oftentimes how black boys or boys of color get framed are, in fact, in crisis. And what they're speaking to are often a set of negative social and academic outcomes. So outside of schools, seeing black males leading the country in rates of homicide, suicide and incarceration. But then within the context of school, we see them overrepresented in suspension and expulsion rates and then underrepresented in advanced placement and honors courses, and then more likely to be designated as as students who have special needs and then ultimately are more likely to drop out. So it's these both social and academic outcomes that make up this crisis, at least particularly within the U.S. context, that is derived from a history of race relations in the U.S. that perpetuate a set of stereotypes about Black men being hyper-aggressive, anti-intellectual, hypersexual as the archetype of what it means to be a black man that then has roots to the history of slavery within the US. So from one generation to the next, we see a perpetuation of images that then contribute to how we organize schools and communities as places that um, are racially marginalizing and then also marginalized by gender that then contribute to the perpetuation of these outcomes And, and situates them within the black boys and men themselves, rather than the schools and neighborhoods and communities within which they navigate, that are designed in ways that are responding to this negative image that only contributes to the continuation of these outcomes.
0: Torti West and Johnny Waititi joined us from New Zealand and shared some rich insights from their context. Toti shares some of the ideas of how they are pursuing inclusivity and highlights the importance of empowerment, with Johnny reflecting on the importance of authenticity in this work.
13: The empowering idea comes from a a couple um, basic perceptions. And that the first one is that we don't want to be seen as tokenistic. So, you know, little ideas of, you know, we could put the periodic table in the Māori language and post that on the wall. But... It's a tokenistic gesture to trying to be inclusive. But the, the easiest, what, the reason why we use the term bicultural empowerment is when a teacher does that, posts, for example, the periodic table in the Māori language on the wall, is that going to empower a Māori student to feel more proud about their identity? And is that going to empower the rest of the students in the class that Māori identity is important to the nation? And, you know, anyone with a, with, with a bit of common sense would, probably um, favour the side of probably, probably not. So um, the concept of bicultural empowerment just encourages teachers to be really reflective on on how their strategies are actually empowering um, students' sense of self-worth through identity, either as a Māori or as a, as a bicultural nation. Um, and, and, and that is, that is challenging. Um, But, and and, and I suppose the most challenging thing about it is teachers are very busy. People trying to plan for all the usual mandate matters of what it takes to be a teacher, but these these sorts of things are very um, context-focused. So, for example, a strategy in an English class is going to be very different from a strategy in a PE class, which will be different, again, to a strategy in a music class or something like that. So, about coming up with meaningful initiatives um, are perceived as authentic, um, and like, like anything, perceptions vary between people, um, and they change over time. So it's 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 a constant journey. There's no end point. It's a it's, a, it's about changing mindsets and um, always mm. uh, reflecting to be better than you were before.
14: Yes, yes. And 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 that's probably the key thing. The word authentic. The word authentic, the word genuine, the words the words authentic, genuine, sincere are probably the most important words that we have. So in terms of some principles we have, um Ensuring the key Māori values are visible in the school, which which has been, and that key Māori processes are part of what the school does, which means there's a genuine sincerity about what we do. If it was tokenism or tokenistic, then it wouldn't last and wouldn't survive. It and because Māori would not accept that, but also it just it, it wouldn't feel right. So we're lucky enough that we have a a strong enough. Um, base of staff and personnel at the school who are very strong in things Māori, but also we have been able to create some very strong relationships with our principal, but also with whānau, which are are family. And so for us, the triangulation of school, teacher, pupil and whānau is quite important it's you know research has proved, proven that the intervention of Farno as well as teachers, the acceleration of success, the rate of the rate of success is, is just just doubles. Sean De Silva from Crescent School in
0: Canada highlighted the importance of civil discourse in schools and being okay with the uncomfortable conversations.
3: One of the things that um, the students mentioned once again, I can relate to this as a person of color that went to a private school is. Um, there's this fear of standing up for what you think is wrong particularly when it comes to race at a young age and um i know my father when he would laugh at moments where you know i would tell him be like dad they're calling me this nickname at school and he'd be like well they're just they're just joking with you they're just laughing with you and in retrospect it was actually quite a racial phrase that they were throwing at me. but his thinking was um, and I get it. I totally get it. Why as a first generation immigrant himself? He worked very, he wasn't coming for money. He thought that this was a lucky position to be in. But his thinking was, you don't talk back to the hand that essentially feeds you. And I think these students uh, at the BSA have also made mention of, unless it's made aware, unless you kind of take the taboo away from it, then we can't have a general discussion about it. And What's been very good at Crescent is that our leadership has given us um, I'll say quote unquote permission to have deeper conversations about this and listen the conversations get extremely awkward and they get extremely difficult and extremely uncomfortable for a lot of people and I think you need to have the right people on board to say nope, we're gonna have this conversation because we want our kids to be able to have the conversation. And I'm glad that I'm in an environment that at least um, that at least allows for that conversation to be had. I think one thing that we need to recognize is that, first of all, we need to see color. Like We can't be the type of people that say, I don't see color. You do need to see color. You need to understand the differences. And one of the things that these students mentioned in these panels that I think is absolutely resonant is They don't need another teacher. I mean, it certainly helps if there's another teacher that identifies as a person of color. I think diversity in the staff members is a big thing. Um, And I think we could also say that seeing representation in in, in our own environment does a lot for us. But they pretty much said, you know what? We don't need every teacher at the school to be black to actually have a conversation with them. What we do need is teachers that have empathy and teachers that are willing to understand or show that they're willing to understand because then they feel more comfortable reaching out to that person. Um, and, and you do that by, in your classrooms, having conversations around elements of, let's say, black history and black culture. You open up your curriculum to having uh, representation of more people in color. I teach philosophy. There isn't a, and a lot of philosophy is a lot of old white Greek men. So. To, to kind of open that up to talking about someone like W.E.B. Du Bois, for example, or talking about a female like Simone de Beauvoir, if you open up the door to at least showing the representation in your curriculum, that at least opens up the door for some sort of relationship of, I'm making an effort to talk about different people. And hopefully you see that there is a representation of different people in this material. Now, that's not the only answer to this. I think the harder work comes from educating your staff. Um, We did something at the beginning of this year where we had a diversity training essentially with with, um, someone that tried to highlight this idea of it 's all about the impact, not the intent. If someone doesn't intend something, it doesn't take away the impact and that resonated for a lot of staff members and I think that goes a long way to building up this understanding and this empathy and If we had a theme for this most recent uh, you know Black History Month, the theme was really to listen. Um, the students, particularly now with social media with how engaged they are in their own communities, they are so tuned in and so engaged in how uh how different they might be or might not be and they're more than willing to have the conversation and i one thing that was said in part one of this podcast was this element of curiosity and this element of being curious is not the problem the problem is when you make the assumption off of your curiosity And we can't as adults, we can't be afraid to ask questions rather than uh, rather than starting a conversation of do you play basketball, maybe ask what sports do you play and then go from there. And I think how we frame these questions and how we frame our presumptions is a big step in developing a more well-rounded, all-encompassed community.
0: What I have learnt in this first season of Exploring Boys Education is that we all need to commit to lifelong learning and if we're open to listening to each other and learning from each other there is so much to gain. The IBSC community is filled with ideas and expertise embodied in people and we're fortunate to be able to tap into those connections and sharpen our minds. Truth is, like I said in the beginning, it's hard to summarize 10 months of conversations into just one episode. These snippets can never do the entire season justice. So, if you've missed any episodes, use this time until September 1st, when Season 2 will drop, to revisit some of the fantastic and insightful conversations we've enjoyed. Thank you, again, for your support, for listening, for downloading, and for sharing this podcast with others. We'll be back in September with some exciting format changes and more great conversations with the people who champion boys' education.